everyone, and welcome back to the Well Nerds Podcast. This is episode number 82. My name is Slater, and I'm here with Caitlin. Hi, everyone, and we have a guest this week. Um, we are here with Nick Pyanson, and Nick is a research geologist and curator of fossil marine mammals at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, but he's also the author of one of our all-time favorite books here on Whale Nerds Podcast, Spying on Whales, and we talk about this book pretty often, especially early in the episodes of our show. Uh, so we're very, very excited to chat with you this evening. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time for us. Oh my gosh, thank you for, that's, uh, I'm hugely flattered to hear that. That's just great. But, <laughs> it's um, a little, like, it's a little maybe obsessive how much we talk about your book, but we love great. it. <laughs> I, no, I'm, I'm really, I'd love to hear more because I'm always curious, you know, about, I think it's true for most people who do these kinds of write books, they just want to know what parts did you like which you know what's and you know from a standpoint of a fellow whale nerd um you know what uh not just what parts do you like but there's a lot there there's so much to talk about like you said so, yeah um, exactly yeah i mean slater and i actually both listened to it as an audiobook and i really enjoy that you narrated it not that some random yeah. person narrated it it was you telling your story which was really yeah. fun yeah, I, uh, I'll tell you the, the thing that, I mean, I wanted to do that. That's kind of uh, the motivating factor. Well, not well, several, but I really wanted to share the stories about how we know anything about these animals and especially about their origins, their evolutionary um, stories. And I think there's a lot of crazy parallels about how hard it is to know something about them today. and you guys know this from just your interactions, from your what you've done, and how hard it is to know something about how they evolved from mm -hmm. the fossil record. Um, and I, that just really struck me. And I and I also think that it's really valuable for people to know how scientists work and how science works. Um, so I thought there was like a way to braid all that together and to tell fun stories because science should be fun. Um, it's hard sometimes, it's not always, you know, just joyride, but what it can tell you is, is something pretty amazing if you, if you do it right. And there's a lot of serendipity, there's a lot of um, challenges, there's all kinds of um, unforeseen uh, problems that happen when you try to do science. And some of them are ethical, some of them are logistical, some of them are diplomatic, um, some of them are just peer to peer, you know, dealing with people. And I think that's kind of the big, um, that's maybe the, the biggest picture I wanted people to know is that scientists are people too. And, um, you know, they have a voice and they have their own experiences. My, my experiences are the, that of a, a white guy. And um, that's, uh, that comes with its own biases for sure. Um, but I still wanted to, to share that because I think there's a range of experiences I've had with a lot of different people that all fit together into one bigger narrative. And that, that's what became the book. But um, the, the, the answer about the audiobook is that when I realized all the special terms that I'd have to like coach another narrator on how yeah. to pronounce, there's probably mm. about, you know, there's about 30, 40 scientific yeah. names and <laughs> yeah. a few jargon terms. So, you yeah. know, at that point, I was just like, I should just do this myself. Yeah. Um, and it was fun. It was, it was hard work and it was, it was really rewarding uh, because I, I didn't, I've never, I hadn't, uh, read a book uh, as an audiobook before, and it made me appreciate the work that um, 
the voiceover actors and audiobook readers do. It's not easy. So. Yeah, no, it's definitely super cool. Um, another book that we have listed Slater and I have both listened to was by Jason Colby. I think it's uh, Orca. Yeah. Is it of Orca? How we came to know and love the Orca. How we came to know and love the ocean's greatest predator, or something like For that. Sure. And he he actually, I guess, his publishing house didn't give him the option of narrating his own book, and he actually was kind of sad about it. So I was like, oh, it's kind of nice to hear from the author yeah. about like. Because Jason's book is also like some of his personal experiences. And so it would have been cool yeah. to have him narrate it. But yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's, I mean, there's a real um, place for hearing from the person, his or herself or their selves who, who wrote it. Um, because that, then, you, you know, you're kind of hearing the words as they meant to be um, said mm -hmm. and, and shared. And that's, that's intimate and that's fun. And that's, that's a whole added dimension. And I think you, you don't usually get that, you know, when you read an audiobook and it's read by somebody famous, that's kind of fun, but it's also, um, it's a step away from, you know, unless an author really wanted to do that. Um, you know, another book I just, since we're plugging books, book I <laughs> recently read was uh, Rebecca Giggs. Oh, I've just, oh, we, that, yeah, this we, is, we just got it too. <laughs> yeah, I have, yeah, so um, she, this is just, there's so much to love about this book. Um, and it's, uh, it's he's going to review the book for us and we're supposed oh, to, no, I'm not gonna do, no. Yeah, we're supposed <laughs> no, to review the book for the podcast, but I mean, we can give him a teaser. <laughs> no, I, I, I no, won't I'm ruin anything. Joking. If you guys are going to do this, I won't ruin But what I will tell you is that I'm uh, going to do a book discussion with Rebecca in, um, in July for oh, the awesome. Virginia festival, the book. So oh, cool. we're going to have a little conversation, um, about, uh, kind of, you know, the topic we're talking about today. Uh, yeah spoiler spoiler alert for our listeners we're gonna hopefully we're gonna have Rebecca on the podcast as well because they sent oh, us the book right. and then they offered to chat with her so that's she's true. in Australia so we're gonna have to for you sure. know coordinate a lot of time zones but we'll see what we can come up with you know and um, there's another book I'd recommend too since we're doing just like the the character we can yeah. finish this soon uh Bathsheba oh, I haven't seen that one floating coast so it's not just about okay. whales but there's nice big uh bowhead on the cover here uh, and this is all about uh, Beringia, which is the region between um, Western Alaska and Eastern Russia that comprises the Bering Sea and the Chukchi Sea and uh, all the animals and people that, that live around there. And it's, it's kind of a, it's an environmental history. So it's a history of people and it's a history of place. Um, and obviously there's a lot of, there's a history of exploitation of marine mammals. So not just mm -hmm. whales, but uh, walruses too. Um, there's uh, uh, just some great chapters and they're really easy to digest. And they go into a deep dive of the history of what we know about, the, about how animals and people are braided together mm -hmm. in different ways. Uh, so if you, if you like history and you like history of place, this is a great this is probably the book to read about Alaska and Russia. Um, oh, cool. I'll definitely check it out. Floating yeah. Coast. Cool. Do they have it on Audible, do you know, or is it an audiobook oh, as well? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I should dig more on audiobooks, but I don't know. She's on Twitter um, and she's, she's another fantastic person, so. Cool. Thanks for the recommendation. So, um, I guess maybe since we're already chatting a little bit about, you know, the book and, um, you know, how it came together and things. Yeah. Um, 
do we want to just start there sure and then kind of maybe maybe we'll backtrack a little bit and then kind of how you got started yeah yeah okay um do you want to ask the first question Swede? um you can go ahead okay um well i guess what was your main inspiration about writing mm. the book mm. you know it's, it's a good way to show how science works and how scientists are people too and all of that good stuff that's one of the big things that right i recommend the book to mm. people is like it's actually it's a approachable way to hear how a scientist works on things and then also it's fabulous about whales yeah. <laughs> yeah it's hard to go wrong when you i mean whales are kind of a topic that begs um explanation and um you know there's a lot of books uh, I've read a lot of books about whales and not all of them really resonate with me. Uh, cause I, I don't know, I, I guess I, I want more of, um, a deeper explanation about how we know about something or how somebody figured something out. Um, I, I, I guess that makes me a demanding reader. Like I'm not just satisfied and, and also, you know, I kind of know too much about some of the facts. So I know when somebody didn't do their homework, um, and, uh, so that, yeah, I guess that makes me kind of like the worst kind of reader for, for nonfiction books. But uh, I guess the, the core inspiration is, I would say is twofold and I haven't really reflected on this in a while. Uh, the first one is that um, I wanted, I thought back to you know, the times when I was really most influenced by, by books that I had read and kind of set me on the path that I, um, that I chose for the career. And it does go back to, I think, being a, a high school student and reading um, some, some books that were really inspiring. Um, and I can't, I'm like trying to like remember some of those books. Um, but what was, so the first point is that I wanted to um, write a book for um, kind of a younger version of me, um, you know, a, a high school student or an early college student who may be interested in the topic, but is not necessarily an expert in science. And that, that was kind of the challenge that, that I wanted to undertake was how to explain what I do to somebody who is curious enough and interested enough to listen, but maybe doesn't have the background and doesn't really actually have the interest in science. So you have to kind of like share with them why you'd want to know and why you'd want to figure it out um, using the tools of science. Uh, the second inspiration comes from the science books. This gets at like the books I remember. And I actually read this book when I was in, just a bit after college, um, Robert Sapolsky's Primates Memoir. Not at all about whales. And not really actually that much about the topic uh, in the title, primates. Uh, there's a lot about studying primates, but it's more about how scientists think and how scientists do their work. This is actually a story about his own career as a scientist, but it is so well written. Uh, many chapters are different from each other, and it's it's really well structured and paced. It's now about a twenty year old book, twenty five year old book, uh, but it's some great writing. Uh, it's some great science writing. Another book that really inspired me was Neil Shubin's Your Inner Fish, uh, which is a paleontologist writing a book about the deep evolutionary origins of different parts of our body. Um, whether it's bones or organs or um, anatomical systems, these all tie back in evolution. Uh, and being a paleontologist makes you really aware of the origins of these parts. 
uh, and that that's that's a that's really a challenging topic to to undertake, but it's told through the stories of of science uh, and these stories of people and places and and how we do things. So those those kinds of books um, structured a lot of the way how I thought I wanted to write something uh, about my own experiences, and I and I did want to highlight the people who I worked with too. So a lot of uh, a lot of parts of the book I'd been writing in my head for for some time. And I would like take out my phone on the on my metro rides to work, and just kind of peck out a few um, a few paragraphs where I try to remember how things happened or who said what or funny funny stories. And uh, what I'd say is like the way how that I went from that to a book was writing, writing, writing. Just a lot of writing. A lot of it was not very good, and uh, editing. So you write a lot and edit a lot. And um, after doing that for a long time. And uh, doing it under under the gun, um, book happened. So, cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, um, do we want to ask more questions going about the book? I guess we could ask about. Um, yeah, let's ask about. So, I have a question about. This is more like an ethics thing, I think. Oh, sure. Really, but it. I was thinking about this when you were talking about Sarah Bayana, especially. Mm. Um, and how there's so much you you know you try to pick visualize for people with the words describing the site how much unsampled material there is there and so like as a paleontologist like where do you draw the line between like the environmental and cultural impacts of a dig versus like the data you're going to be able to collect like how much is it worth knowing the thing oh, when you sure. have such an impact on the place. I mean, it was pretty serendipitous that the road cut was already happening, right? And that exposed all those things um, for the highway. But if you were to go back there, like, I mean, how much more do you dig up, I guess, is the question, like what's reasonable? Yeah, yeah I think there's two tensions there. One, and, and I, I definitely, I feel this acutely, which is that, uh, you know, anybody who collects natural history objects, and this is not just about fossils, it's about anything. Um, you're losing information all the time, whether it's a, uh, a carcass stranded on a beach or a skeleton that's uh, falling out of the cliff face, uh, you're not going to get everything that there once was. That's just not possible. Um, you know, even a fresh carcass, you know, that had died immediately. Um, you're just, it's not possible. You're going to lose information along the way. And if you think that what you're trying to collect is important, man, you just want, you have this like deep desire to collect everything. So you need to accept, I mean, that's like, a, um, it's kind of almost like a, a Zen thing of like, accept that you will not collect everything about that object, but you'll do your best job. And that's kind of why museums exist, right? Are these places where you can store that information. Ideally the object itself, um, but more importantly is the context, the information. And, you know, I think, I think about that with Sarah Bannon. I brought like a little 3D print of one oh, of the cool. oh, awesome. Um, you know, and you can print one of these up yourselves um, when you download, but that uh, shows up pretty well in that angle. Wow. Is um, that B33? It is B33. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was just but, listening to that the other day. Yeah. So, um, you know, and you can, actually, like, you can even see the, there's a paintbrush printed at, at really, really tiny. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Over there. But, um, so, I mean, this is data that never left the country, right? Like the actual object didn't leave the country, but we have the yeah. digital data and it looks great. I mean, when you look at it online, it's like being trans the, with the photogrammetry data, the, all the photos assembled together in a 3D model, 
it looks like you were right there. And yeah. um, so that's that's all information, right? That's not the actual object. And so I, I, that um, it's a good segue to the second item, which is like, yeah, there's the tension about wanting to collect everything, but then there's the actual real world consideration that I am an American citizen working in Chile with Chilean and other South American collaborators. It's not my patrimony. It's not my mm -hmm. job to tell them what to do. Um, right. I think my job is to do the science. And so I wanna do that in a way that's fair and, and ethical and responsible, you know, ethical with permits, fair in terms of international collaboration where everybody feels like they have a, um, a fair piece of contribution and that you're working together towards something. And, you know, this is nearly like 10 years ago. Um, this is all before we started talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in science. And it's mm -hmm. clear that the way how science works is not fair to everybody. It's very biased against women and people of color. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's been biased in favor of people who look like me. And so um, I didn't realize it at the time, but now I, I think about this a lot more that a lot of the international collaborations I do are actually a form of science diplomacy. And diplomacy is actually a person-to-person -person relationship. Mm -hmm. And by having, you know, I'm, I'm really proud that a lot of the, um, relationships, the collaborations, but the one person to person relationships, co-author to co-author, collaborator to collaborator, scientist to scientist that have formed not just in Chile, but all around the world have persisted. And that, that, that goes back to having a form of trust and communication and understanding. And it doesn't always happen that way. Uh, there's way too many examples of science going in a different direction uh, towards like colonial approaches or parachute mm -hmm. science where, yeah. where the, the resources, so the, the, the objects, the discoveries and the knowledge are extracted. It's very asymmetric, right? So I like to, you know, I, I, um, there was a uh, National Geographic held an Explorers Festival last week actually. And uh, one of the things we talked about was about parachute science and colonial science. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but how, you know, the, the key thing there, it, like with respect to Sarah Baena, is that it was a good example of global north meets global south. Uh, someone like me representing the global north coming down with uh, a lot of advantages for doing science, but I wanted to collaborate. I wanted to work, I wanted to solve this problem. And the ability to answer those questions is about working with your colleagues and having trust. And that, you know, that's something I tried to write about over the course of a few chapters in Spying on mm -hmm. Wales was how does that work? And it's not necessarily a story about global north meets global south. It's people to people and people are different and weird and funny in different ways and quirky and have personalities. And, and that that's fun and colorful. And I wanted to kind of illustrate that. But if you're able to, to navigate that, that can be what makes science fun, makes it successful. It makes you feel like you actually um, can answer the questions that you sought to answer. So uh, unwittingly, you know, without thinking about diversity and equity and inclusion, I kind of was heading in that direction. And, and it's, it's really a, the question I've been asking myself is what was I thinking beforehand? You know, what, how was I doing science mm -hmm. and how do I do it differently now? And I think I'm just a little more aware that, that there are all these biases and I really value the, the peer to peer exchange, which should be reciprocal. Everybody should win off the success in kind of a, yeah. a cycle. And it's hard to do that. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, but, yeah. it, but the, the opposite of that is extractive where there's a huge, asymmetry and that has gone for many years in the opposite direction where the global north has 
generated big museum collections from things yeah. that do belong to other countries. So, you know, going back to Sarah Baena, those data, the actual objects stayed in country and the data are available for anybody. Uh, you know, yeah. I think I, one of the things I wrote was like the day we published on our discoveries, um, those data were available to anybody, you know, a kid in Kansas and a kid in the Atacama, as long as they had an internet connection, could see the, the results. And I think that's a good way to do it. That's that's kind of yeah. the best I could do at the time. And I think that's gonna be more of, hopefully of what you see in the future for, for this kind of work. And that that's not just for paleontologists. You know, you can think about examples where that could be true for somebody who's doing whale research on living whales, because mm -hmm. um, those are resources. They're resources, um, you know, in a very strict sense for the United States, they're protected species. Uh, but, you know, you know this, they're, they're they have economic value and they have mm -hmm. scientific value. So, yep. um, and we don't know everything that there is to know about them. Uh, I was kind of, you know, thinking about having this conversation tonight. I was, I was trying to think, well, what are the new things that I would say if I, if I got a chance to rewrite this? You know, how much more do we know than when I, when this book was published? Um, I was kind of hoping you guys were going to ask me that question. I mean, <laughs> if you want to go ahead and go that route with it, we can. I feel, I feel I don't like pre preempting. no more things, but we also have Very more fun. questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you guys, we don't have to, we can talk about that or we, you know. Um, well, I do have a follow-up in particular yeah. about um, Sarah Baena. So um, after you wrote the, well, after you went to the site and after you wrote that section for the yeah. book, there was a discovery of a massive die off of whales. Right. Yeah. Um, in the same area, if I'm not mistaken, right? A bit farther south, south yeah. in a place called Golfo uh, Peñas, Golfo de Peñas, uh, which is in Patagonia, Chilean Patagonia. And, and so uh, it sounded like, again, a harmful algal bloom was the yeah. cause, sort of. I think so. It's pretty, you know, it's, it's one of these things if you've, if you've ever ha had uh, done necropsy on a whale, dolphin or whale, um, you realize it's super hard to figure out the cause yeah. of death in some instances. I think uh, I had a, actually Jeremy Goldbogen, who's a professor at Stanford, who, who shows up in the book. Um, he texted me some photos of a fin whale carcass stranded. Uh, at a Silomar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So Slater right lives in Monterey. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, that, that fin whale was clearly T-boned by some ship. I mean, it was a fresh carcass. The, the lumbar verts were all splayed open. Um, and, um, you know, that's a horrible, that's really traumatic way to go. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, that in that case, the cause of death is pretty clear, I think. But, you know, when you get a fresh carcass and you think it's harmful algal bloom, you really got to get the gut contents. And then you have to do the immuno, you have to do the assays and it's not always yeah. clear. So it, it's, it turns out, I think it's really hard to show harmful algal blooms. And that was the challenge in this part of Chile was like, you have all these carcasses, some of which have been decaying for quite some time. They all look like say whale, but the question is, they don't all seem to have arrived at the same time. There's kind mm -hmm. of a, they probably came over the series of weeks or months. And boy, mm -hmm. does that not, that sounds exactly like what we think was going on with Cerebiana, where you have four four levels of this. Um, and you know, for, for an assemblage of La Familia where you have three whales piled on top of each other, uh, you know, I think those three whales probably knew each other. Were they related? Did they live together? Hard to know, but I, I suspect, yeah, you know, those, those three whales. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, are, are they truly a family? 
probably not, but they might have been genetically related to each other. They might have swam together. So, uh, you know, and so uh, one of the things I think, so one, cause of death is always tricky, uh, but the prediction that we had out of the work at Cerebiana was that, you know, large whale populations are recovering. And as they recover, we probably expect to see more large whale strandings. And mm -hmm. that, you know, happened, and it was actually some of our collaborators from the work in Cerebiana who went down to Chile and Patagonia to do that taphonomic work to measure as many carcasses as they could, get aerial photos. They had National Geographic funding. And yeah, it does look like that was harmful algal bloom. And it's for a population of whales we don't really know much about. Say yeah. whales are kind of, you know, poorly known all around the world. Um, we think they're temperate tropical. We don't really know. Uh, we think there's one yeah. species. We don't know. Yeah, doing. we've seen, I mean, we've seen them in the spring off the coast of Massachusetts. So like how temperate tropical are they really? The water's like yeah. high forties in the spring when they're exactly. here. Right. And, you know, they're showing up at, um, what's the latitude of that part of Chile? It's like, it's in the forties. Um, yeah. I mean, so, we're like 42 here. So, yeah. so um, yeah, it's, I mean, there's all these kinds of questions that come out of that, but I do think that that's, it's a sign that whale, large whale populations at least are, are recovering and we're about to see what the world was once like before we systematically reduced whale populations 90, 95%. You know, we, we're living in a world that's fundamentally changed from how it was even a hundred years ago. And those are the kind of really interesting ecological questions to me is what was the world like before we took down all the whales? And we took the two to 3 million whales, that amount of biomass is gone from the oceans. And yeah. it's, you're crazy to think that that didn't have somehow have an effect on marine ecosystems. So, um, you know, the more we can have whale populations come back, I think the more we'll see these patterns and realize how the world once was. And that's just going back to Cerebiana, that's kind of what I think is really valuable is that Cerebiana is what is before whaling for sure. So, yeah. you know, the, the, it should not be so surprising that you're finding a lot of whales together because there were no humans to hunt them. So that's, that's a, it's a, it's showing you how dense and how abundant whales once were that they would pile on top of each other from the strand and become fossilized together yeah i mean that's yeah. you know i really didn't I, um i was reluctant to think that it was strandings i wanted to i wanted there to be another explanation and you know the more the data piled together it's like really one place four different times really all these whales together this is kind of like you know, and that's the value of doing science is that at least you can like ground truth what you think with evidence and data and uh, your colleagues to check you for your worst um, assumptions and biases. So. <laughs> yes. That's why it's good to work in a team. Yeah, I think it, no one person can do it all. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it's really like a, a strong antidote to the hero complex, you know, that oh it's just one person who's you know in charge and figures it all out and um i don't know everything um and what i really enjoy is learning through other people so um you know one of the the real pleasures of doing science is getting to do science with other people because they have different experiences they have different backgrounds different expertise and that is hugely valuable because i think as as i wrote in the book the best questions in science are at the edges of disciplines. You know, disciplines that we have are really actually um, artifacts. Like paleontology doesn't actually exist out in the world. Fossils do, but yeah. the idea of paleontology doesn't. 
but our questions are good questions. And sometimes those questions cut at the edges of fields. And so that's when, you know, a conversation that I have with Jeremy Goldbogen, somebody who thinks really differently from the way I do and, and has a different uh, skill set and expertise, we get along with each other, but the questions are kind of conversations always get at these questions on the edges of our expertise. Because I want to know more about what he's doing. He wants to know more about what I'm doing. And from that, that margin, that's where these questions kind of kind of sit. Yeah. Speaking so of, speaking, uh, go ahead. Oh, go Speak. I was at, we had the same thing. Speaking of, of Jeremy and uh, your guys' collaboration together, you were on a Icelandic whaling ship. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cutting into whales. Yeah. Um, you talk about the sensory organ and the fin whale's jaw. Yeah. What What was that like? That was wild. Uh, I mean, that that was that was another <laughs> crazy. So um, that was part of my postdoc work, and I was really fortunate to be able one to time the um, time and or to to narrow to um, schedule the time and the place for doing that work with Jeremy as he was finishing his PhD research and we we um, this opportunity to go to Iceland was really a, a function of having um, a, a, an ideal connection through his advisor and my postdoc mentor Bob Shadwick who had worked in Iceland in the 80s uh, with the team from Duke University to look at the me mechanical properties of the arteries and hearts of large whales that were just like as they are were, had been recently part of the whaling uh, industry in Iceland. And you know what makes whaling in Iceland different from whaling elsewhere uh, is that it's commercial whaling. It's not scientific whaling, uh, and it's very tightly regulated by the Icelandic government. Um, you know whatever your feelings are about whales being killed. Um, it, it at least is really transparent about why they're doing it. And uh, it's all within their economic uh, political jurisdiction. So, uh, you know, that's, that, that again is another like example of science diplomacy. We're like, okay, this is going on in this country. And these data are otherwise lost. Uh, this incredible anatomical information, you know, going back to stranded whales. Um, man, is it just a mess when you come upon a large stranded whale? And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing I didn't realize, and actually this goes back to photos that Jeremy was even sending me from the Isalamar uh, fin whale. Uh, there were chunks of, of uh, throat muscle and um, parts of the skin that were kind of littered on the shoreline. And Jeremy mm -hmm. sent me this amazing photo of a piece of the tongue. And it looked exactly like, I'm just going to like pull it up on my phone here. This is just like, I don't know if you can really see. I have so many friends that have, been, oh, wow. that have gone down, that live in the area that have I mean, gone down to see that whale. Yeah. It looks. Uh, yeah. I, here, I want to get in the. Yeah, we can it. see it. I, oh, yeah, it, that's uh, good. So did he? I mean, he, did he take from the whale to do research? Do not know. I I know he has a permit okay. for doing so, but I but I think he was just kind of scoping it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he he would rather put a heart rate monitor on a living whale. That's kind of his his yeah. jam. But uh, you know, also if it's not you know if it's a quick drive away he's going to go check it out so yeah. but, but you know it's this photo where i'm like i can see the collagen fibers i can see the muscle bundles this reminds me of what we saw in iceland it's also a beautiful yeah. photo it uh it, just, it reminded me of you know the reasons why we went to iceland which was to know something about the anatomy because otherwise we don't really know that much about these large whales about how their how their bodies are put together how they're able to use all these parts of their anatomy to lunge feed and that's what Jeremy and I were really getting at was like, how does lunch eating work and how did it evolve? 
Well, to know that, you need to know something about the parts that are involved. And the anatomy is all different. Um, lunch feeding whales are just built completely differently from uh, other whales. And this was at a time before even all the drone data were, were available. So we just, yeah. I didn't know anything. Every photo I saw, I was like, is that what we're looking at? Can you see the floor of the mouth? Can you see a bit of this? Yeah. And so getting to see it in person fresh, uh, there was very little decay with these carcasses. Um, that was a huge, huge boon. We collected so much data. I could sit around for the next five years and just publish on data that we collected from Iceland. Um, wow. So so there's that huge benefit, that big plus of like oh, a lot of information we can get yeah. uh, that would otherwise be lost. Um, we're doing it in a, in a legally clear way. Um, you know, the question is like, should you be working with whalers? And, you know, I, I wrestled with this question a bit uh, because I think there's, you know, rightfully so, a lot of controversy about whether we should be whaling. Um, fin whales, uh, you know, no large whale population except for maybe, if, maybe, maybe humpbacks has really recovered from whaling. Um, so like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be whaling any of them. But Iceland does regulate it. They do have a quota. So I felt a little bit more comfortable in that there were some rules that were being followed for commercial whaling and that ultimately the purpose was for consumption. So um, this to me seemed a bit more like what you would, um, the kind of interactions scientists have had with indigenous peoples of the Arctic, the uh, mm -hmm. Nupiat in the North Slope borough of Alaska or in Greenland um, and different from uh, scientific whaling in Japan. And I have Japanese colleagues who can barely get access to data from uh, the Japanese scientific whaling work, which you know is, is really different because scientific whaling is agenda-driven science. Mm -hmm. It's science yeah. saying like, we need to kill whales because we think they're doing this. And yeah. the problem is that you can answer those questions by doing non-lethal research. You can mm -hmm. actually get better data than by harpooning these whales. So. Yeah when you're faced with that, you have to say like, man, I don't, I think this doesn't pass the, the test, uh, the ethical test, but for commercial whaling, that's a bit different. And I'm, and I'm happy now that we collected the data when we did, because it doesn't look like Iceland has not been commercially whaling for a few summers. Yeah. Um, and there was, the opportunities were so slim. Um, you know, we had a few hours to work every day and we'd get whatever, whatever information we could. And really, I mean, every time I looked more and more at the anatomy, uh, the more I realized we didn't know anything about um, the vasculature, the nervous system, just how all this is put together. It's still largely unreported, un unknown. And that's exciting. Yeah. That's why you kind of do science is to pull back at mysteries. Do you want to ask him Slater? Um, the next one? No, like... Yeah. When you held that thing, oh, oh yeah, the so, organ yeah, in your hand, yeah, oh, uh, that I, was, I, 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 well, that was just wild. I mean, I, you know, I, like, I what kinda, did it feel like? Was it squishy? Like, was it oh, hard? Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's it's gooey. It's gooey, sticky, gooey for sure. Um, <laughs> it's, how big it's, is it? Like, is it like you need two uh, hands in, or? In a fin whale, it's about like it's about it's more larger than two hands put together, and it's got wow. about that oval like structure. Okay. But okay. there's all these papillae. I'm trying to show that with my tips of my fingers here. There's all these papillae that kind of like come out of either side and you're just like, this is gooey. It has these weird polyps on the inside. I mean, it literally looks like sci-fi alien kind of freakiness. And, you know, uh, I was just like, 
I had all the literature with me. And so I had a binder of PDFs that were printed and, you know, covered in like in acetate pages. So I was just like flipping through these pages and I, I was standing there with Jeremy and Bob and I was like, this doesn't make any, this is not, nobody has reported this. And this is really weird because we've killed 2 million whales. Yeah. Was nobody looking at this? And I think the answer is, yeah. I think like you just, the times when you had a biologist who knew anatomy on board a whaling ship were actually not that many times. So somebody who would think to look at something or have the opportunity probably didn't. Um, so that set us off on this kind of like, is this a pathology or is this real? Let's start opening up every jaw we can. And that's not exactly easy because you need like nine giant Icelanders with hooks and flensing knives uh, to take a break from their very important job to come over and help, you know, goofy scientist who's like, can you just cut this thing you never cut and cut it in half just in this perfect way that we want you to, and then stop <laughs> and we want to take these photos and don't get mad at us. So it, it was, you know, that's, that's the diplomacy aspect of like, how do I ask these people to help me without pissing them off? <laughs> yeah. um, and um, uh, we were able to do that. And, and that, was, that was great because we realized it wasn't a pathology. Two, that it was asymmetric. It was actually not wired the same way every time we looked at it. And uh, by going on one of the whaling ships and collecting from minke whales, we were able to show that it wasn't just one species. When you find two, you're like, okay, uh, this looks like something that actually is probably pretty prevalent across lunch feeding whales. And that's when you pick up the, you know, start sending emails to your colleagues saying like, can you get me a chin or can you pop one of these open at the next If you training? find a fresh one. <laughs> yeah. And so, so does it have to be fresh? Well, uh, it, has it, to, it has to be fresh if you want to do histology on the nervous tissue. And that's, you know, to be honest, that's what makes it a nature paper and not just like something else is being able to get fresh tissue to do the histology is definitive for showing nerves. Nerves decay really fast yeah. on death. So if you wanna get nervous tissue, you need to get something freshly dead. And how are you gonna do that with whales? You either have to be really lucky or working with whalers. So, yeah. um, so that's kind of the, you know, there's histological data, there's anatomical data, um, there's, um, across many different species, across young animals, across old animals. So, you know, you kind of think every which way about how to, how to pull at the, to tease out the answer here. And the answer is, I think lunch feeding whales have this gnarly bit of nervous tissue that has vasculature that's asymmetrical. And that was the, the other thing like, hmm, asymmetrical. Well, fin whales are pretty asymmetric in their pigmentation. Actually, they're the yeah. only, asymmetrically pigmented mammal on the planet. Yeah. So, you know, and if you looked at their baleen, their baleen is yep. asymmetrically pigmented too. Mm -hmm. Pretty crazy, right? So, I mean, you know, it's just like every, that, that always makes me think every time you look at a whale, there's something else that's just not normal about them like any <laughs> other mammal. And you just kind of wonder what is going on with evolution in the ocean that, that leads to these kinds of, I mean, it's exciting as a scientist to realize like there's so much we still haven't answered about them. Um, yeah, so, totally. Yeah, it was wild. The, the chin organ thing was super, super wild. Um, and, you know, I had been doing that work when I went down to Chile and I was looking literally at B33 and I, I remember walking up to the tip and thinking, huh, I wonder if they had a sensory organ too. You know, it was, it was, they, I'm trying to think of the years that it was. I think there were a few seasons when my work in Iceland then overlapped with, with Chile. You know, that was kind of crazy. Oh, wow. 
globetrotting oh. um, carbon footprint, but um, yeah. yeah. Burning up dead dinosaurs to go look at other dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, they do. I mean, you know, if you've ever been close to a whale, it's hard not to think of what, you know, what, it's not, it's easy to imagine how people mythologize them as beasts yeah. and dragons because they just don't look like everything else that you encounter on a daily basis. So, yeah, totally. Even, even if your life is that of, you know, you know, fishing or whatever, yeah. you know, being on the coast, yeah. being that close to a whale is just a very different experience, so. Totally. Okay, I think we have one more like bigger like mm -hmm. mm -hmm. question then we'll maybe ask you a couple little fun ones to wrap cool. it up. Um, yeah. But I'm just wondering, like, where do you see your work having the most impact and relevance on on modern day whales? Like, if it's the work in Iceland, or if it is things like Sarabayana, like, yeah. I guess, where do you feel like you're having the most impact on understanding our whales that we have in the ocean today? So, working with Jeremy actually, and uh, a postdoctoral fellow uh, who's working in in Jeremy's lab named Matt Savoka were um, trying to ask that specific question about what happened in the last hundred years from a world where there were two to three million more whales versus what we have today, which is recovery. And how much of, of these really important nutrient and chemical cycles that drive productivity in the oceans are we missing today that we had circa 1900 before pelagic industrial whaling reduced the numbers of the largest whale species, 90 to 95%. And it turns out that there's a big missing part here. And it's kind of hinted at by some of the back of the envelope calculations that you may have seen reported in, in um, you know, by economists. But mm -hmm. the, the key yeah. thing here is feeding rates. And the only way you get at feeding rates is from the tag data, right? So yeah. tag data is, are, are great for knowing about like what's happening on that day and how much a whale is feeding yeah. and how, but if you have enough tags over enough years over enough different species, you can actually say something about the big picture, which is what you're, what you're asking. You know, uh, it turns out, you know, the easy, it's not, um, it's not hard to imagine that missing a component to ocean ecosystems. It turns out it's really, really important for these cycles, for the amount of carbon, for the amount of nitrogen. Uh, it's not just about um, uh, the whale pump that you've probably read about and, and you may even talk about on these whale watches that whales keep these nutrients up at the surface that would otherwise fall down uh, and um, fall all the way down the water column to the seafloor. But um, if we were able to actually bring back the number, the abundances of whales to what they were circa 1900, you would recover uh, a huge missing component of the amount of ocean ecosystem function that's that's missing right now. So that's yeah. a that's a big picture thing um, that, that I think is really relevant. Uh, and I do think um, what we're gonna see is, you know, which, what are the whale species are gonna be most adaptable and which ones are gonna need our help? Um, yeah. The ones that need our help are species that are limited to rivers. So the Yangtze River dolphin, too late. Um, yep. I think that one's gone. But uh, the Ganges river dolphins, uh, there yeah. seems to be more than one species. It's pretty clear, and um, those are those are imperiled by where they live. So they they are probably going to need a lot more assistance from us. Um, but other species like humpbacks and gray whales, 
they seem to do pretty well. I mean, there's this yeah. report of a gray whale hanging off uh, Monaco uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, that's the third time this has happened. And they, mm -hmm. some scientists just published on um, the Namibian gray whale that yeah. was the most, yeah. the, the farthest extra limital record from a few years ago. That's tough. I mean, I think at a certain point, you have to admit that gray whales are somehow navigating pretty far from, from the North Pacific and they're not emaciated. They're kind of doing just fine. And we know from the very recent record, actually, this is something I've just been working on with a former postdoctoral fellow and now a professor at University of Wisconsin, uh, Allison Fleming, um, that we, we think we've identified a, a gray whale skeleton from North Carolina that's oh, cool. a thousand years old. Yeah. Um, you know, and so this is clearly an Atlantic gray whale. It seems to be the most yeah. complete skeleton we know. Wow. And uh, we hope to say more about it later this year. But uh, you realize the gray whales once were in the Atlantic not that long ago, yeah. uh, a few hundred yeah. years ago. And why they disappeared, nobody knows, but they're, mm -hmm. they, they're survivors. Uh, they made it through several ice ages. And um, I think, you know, this is part of the big question is which whales are gonna thrive and which ones are really gonna be um, more like the vaquita, more like the North Pacific right whale, where we may not see them go extinct. I mean, I thought while I was writing the book that vaquita was on its way out, and it was almost, you know, it was kind of the typical conservation fair of writing an obituary, but I was wrong. I was totally wrong. Um, vaquita have not gone extinct. They're not doing great, but... <laughs> You can't they're hanging say, on. Well, yeah, they're there. still in there. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, you, all the data that we have, I mean, data that we have from other mammal species says that there are really bad days, the huge genetic bottlenecks. We had one, uh, we know many other species have gone through that. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's a bit too soon to weigh in on, on vaquita. And that actually should be a hugely hopeful thing is that the, the species we thought that was in the most peril uh, did not, has not gone extinct yet. So, um, you know, we should be a little bit more optimistic about these species that, that are tough to know about, that are tough to document and observe hanging in there. Yeah, definitely. Do you have, oh, sorry. Do you have a favorite fossil that you have found as part of your work? I love, this is great. I always love this question. Um, <laughs> you know, um, it's, I, I try to communicate this in the book is that um, I think a lot of paleontologists are like this and a lot of people work in museums. Uh, that you remember the specimens you've handled and touched. There's something about that like uh, tangible quality of knowing the weight and the texture and how it feels. And um, you soak up a lot of that information and you kind of remember in your head where you last put that specimen in the drawer. And um, there's a lot of specimens like that, that, that I think about um, that, I, that some of which I haven't published on. So I'd say like the, you know, those are, those are um, frustrations that kind of loom and hang in my head of like, man, I really got to publish on that one specimen I collected a long time ago that's in another museum's drawer. Um, if I had a favorite, you know, it's like picking your favorite kid, really hard thing to do. Um, it, I always stumble on this question. This is like the thing I should like really nail. Um, I would say it's, you know, the, um, I don't have one. There's, there's, it's, uh, I'm always excited to find the next one that, um, and that's part of like this enduring process is that you're never quite done until you're dead. I think that, um, uh, um, collect when you're, when you're a collector and when you're a museum type, uh, it's something that you're always going to be doing. 
um, and uh, that that's a motivating uh, aspect, I think, of, of the line of work that, that I do, uh, that you constantly are on the lookout for something interesting. I mean, um, this is a marine mammal, but not a whale. Uh, finding the cast of an elephant seal in the collections that was collected in Indiana off I just of saw that Lafayette River. Yeah. Like a news story just came out about it or something. I just saw that today. That's funny. Maybe I mean, I'm that, looking at your website or something. I okay. don't know what That's I was probably, doing. It's it's still a, a recent news item on my lab webpage that we need to update. But um yeah it's I mean that that's like the last place on earth I'd expect to find the marine mammal but uh based yeah. on all the data that seems to be true what a lost little lost seal that swam up river uh, about a thousand years ago so it's you just never know what you're going to find and what kind of questions it's those objects are gonna uh force you to confront so that i guess that's why i'm kind of looking forward to it I, i'm really excited about this gray whale that we identified in north carolina that was collected about 30 years ago that that's that's kind of a cool story to me I, yeah most... we just we just did a pretty big episode about gray whales and we talked about um records of them being seen yeah. in the south southeast u.s and then a few records from the mediterranean and um other parts of the north atlantic and so yeah we that'll be cool we'll be excited to see that come out there'll be a whole episode on it <laughs> probably it will be yeah, yeah, that's a, part of that's that episode awesome. on it <laughs> I mean, we, we generally tend to find, I know this because the Smithsonian has most of the gray whale fossils from the US Atlantic seaboard uh, or sub fossils, you know, historical gray whale specimens. And they're mostly uh, individual elements, bits of skull, jawbone, uh, cervical vert, which is pretty diagnostic for gray whales. And I've seen a lot of the European stuff. It's a little more complete, but it's still not as complete as this skeleton in North Carolina. So- Oh, cool. That's uh, exciting. You know, as, as we lose the coast to sea level rise, I think we'll probably have a narrow window for collecting a few more. Yeah. Um, might be buried in, in different, you know, barrier islands and berms. So, um, you know, that's, that's actually, I guess the bigger picture is that um, there's a lot more marine mammals to find as glaciers melt and sea level rises. Uh, there should be some pretty exciting discoveries. I mean, we're gonna find more ice age mammals melting out of the permafrost and out of glaciers, so. Pretty soon we'll start finding some weird uh, marine mammals that once were, you know, and on my bucket list is, you know, on top of finding a Neanderthal would be stellar sea cow, would probably be, um, you know, there's all kinds of Pleistocene relics that may have entered into uh, glacial deposits. So um, I guess I'm, that'll be the one silver lining of glacial melt. I was just going to say, you know, climate change <laughs> is such a looming problem, but uh, there's a lot more. Now, this is the whole perspective of museum of working in museums is that uh, you want to save the world you want to save parts of the world before you can't know about them anymore um, yeah so mm -hmm. um, I, I really take that to heart um, that my job is to collect and preserve as much as I can um, to do it responsibly to do it uh, in a way that that recognizes the um, the sovereignty and the uh, the, the rights of nations and peoples, but um, it should also be fun and you should be able also to answer scientific questions. Uh, I think that's pretty important too. Awesome. All right. I have one more question. Okay. I, on the podcast, I talk about, because I'm a photographer, so 
Mm-hmm. I always talk about after reading your book, especially about wanting to go back to the Eocene and photograph the animals. <laughs> then is, <laughs> is there a, a period of time you would want to go back to? Absolutely, a period of time and place. It would be Ooh. Pakistan, probably fifty-five million years ago. <laughs> I would want to see the traces left in. I guess it would probably be about it's in the Eocene you know, between like yeah. 35, 50 million years ago. But I'd love to see the kind of um, footprints left in the sand of these earliest whales. I'd like to see- Pacacetus. Yeah, Pacacetus yeah. probably looked, you know, these reconstructions of it as a little lost dog are pretty funny. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the the protocetids, these kinds of whales that are looking a little bit like crocs, a little bit like sea lions, they probably left some pretty interesting um, traces and yeah. um, records of their behavior that, that we don't always get fossilized. And I just think it'd be really, did they have hair? Did they have tail flukes? What was really going on? Were, there, were their toes webbed? I mean, there's just a lot of soft tissue that we would like to know more about. You know, what was the color of their skin or their fur? Um, paleontologists have so much fun doing these paleo art reconstructions. And I actually think they're not imaginative enough because just look at the diversity of whales today. I mean, yeah, there's some yeah. really weird dorsal fins. There's some really weird flukes. Um, there's just a lot that would never, ever be preserved. And I always think about, you know, we're just talking about gray whales. Imagine if you did not know gray whales existed and you found them in the fossil record. There would yeah. be no ability to know anything about their bizarre yeah. eating behavior or their True. ecology. So, I mean, maybe you could figure some of it out if you're really lucky, but um, you, you wouldn't know. know how many hitchhikers they have. And no, I mean, there's, <laughs> they just look crusty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's so many neat things about their ecology that are just never preserved. And that, and that's, you know, we, we get pretty far. If you find barnacles in the fossil record that are very specific to those parasites on specific species of whales, you kind of know the presence of a whale, right? But, um, but that doesn't always happen. And you actually don't, that's just an inference. Uh, it may have been different in the geologic past. So that's, I think that's always what makes it fun is uh, I have a colleague who talked about um, being a paleontologist in this way. And he said that it's almost like being a biologist on a different planet, but it's the same planet just at different times. Yeah. So if you can imagine, you know, this is to your question Slater, if you can imagine what life would be like on the scene, it would be almost as if you'd come to a different planet. Um, but it's actually yeah. planet Earth. It's our home, just in a different configuration, different continents, different places, different temperatures, different CO2 concentration. Um, and then you have some lineages that aren't around now, but they did begat, they're part of the family tree. So you kind of, you know, it would be cool to, to pop into, sorry, I had my email up and that changes. So it would be really cool to, to drop in on different times in the geologic past to see what whales were like. Yeah, I, I definitely, that is part of my, like, <laughs> I do dream of that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> cool. It's not just us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, book, the book painted a good picture. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Painted a good Thank picture you. of it, for glad sure. I'm glad to hear that you guys get so much out of it. That's really, um, yeah hugely awesome to hear because um, I did pack a lot of stories in there and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that it, that it's found its home with you guys. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, I feel like we could probably carry this conversation on all night, but you know, you and I being on the East coast, I think we should probably wrap it up, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We were so excited when you agreed to, to chat with us. We were like, Oh my gosh, we really love this book and we get to talk to him. We're like, so yeah, we were very excited. (laughs) So, um, but to wrap up the episode, I just want to also say thank you to everybody that listens to the whale nerds podcast. Um, you can check out our new website, thewhalenerds.com, or you can follow us on social media on Instagram or Facebook at Whale Nerds. And thank you to our Patreon uh, subscribers. We always appreciate your support of our work. And I think that's it, pretty much. Do you want to do Secret Whale of the Week later? Do you have, well, first, do you have a website or anywhere they oh, can yeah, get more information about you? you as well, Nick. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I, I would go... There's a lot of ways to find out um, more information about the work I do. Um, if you want to download those 3D wh- 3D models of oh, fossil yeah. whales from Sarabayana, uh, you can go to 3D.si.edu and uh, just go- just search Sarabayana or fossil whale, and you'll find plenty of plenty of great 3D models that you can even print at home, just like this. And you can definitely um, uh, you can definitely manipulate and, and measure and kind of take yourself back to what it's like to, to see these fossils in person. Um, Sweet. Uh, which is, which is cool. And there's, you know, I, uh, I would say that um, always read whatever you can of first person accounts or people who are great writers, because um, that is how you'll really kind of get to experience places that you may not have the opportunity to go to. Um, yeah. That's always a good and- if people want to buy the book, we downloaded it on Audible, but mm. I'm assuming you can probably purchase it most places that books are sold. Yeah, I would say your independent booksellers or um, you can go to the Penguin um, Random House website and uh, uh, it will direct you to links where you can buy Spying on Whales. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And uh, thank you again to all our listeners. Yeah, our secret whale of the week is Pacasitis. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Hard one so, to find. Hard one to find. At the end of the episode, you can comment Pacasitis on the social media post about this episode when it goes out. So That's thanks, awesome. everyone. Thank you so much, guys. Really enjoyed this. Thank you.